Welcome to Just the Right Book, the podcast for curious readers. I'm your host, Roxanne Cody. Upcoming will be our conversation with Gina Barreca, the author of If You Lean In, Will Men Just Look Down Your Blouse? And it will be a fascinating conversation about how we think about feminism, how officially Gina will be 60. So we'll talk about how all of that looks. Yeah, let's do it. We have a lot to talk about. We are joined today by Dr. Gina Barreca, which makes Gina sound like someone probably more serious than I think of her, but she has a pretty impressive background. She's appeared on 2020, The Today Show, CNN, BBC, NPR, Oprah. Uh, she's discussed everything, but she's pretty damn good on gender, power, politics, and humor. Every time I read Gina's next book, I think it's her best book, but I think if You Lean In is a pretty perfect book. And she's had lots of articles in the New York Times, The Independent of London, uh, The Chronicle of Higher Education, Cosmopolitan. So you, you sort of get the idea that Gina is not a lightweight. What she does, which is why I thought it would be great to have her on today, is she takes topics that sometimes people don't want to talk about, and she talks about them in a way that makes it irresistible for you to think about and talk about. And one of them is, of course, women's issues and women's independence and feminism and all of that. So we'll be talking about, given that the Women's March is coming up, we'll be talking about the books that you might want to think about reading. They're not necessarily new, but books that uh, Gina thinks are important. But let's start with your newest book, which, of course, I'm in love with. Gina always has funny titles, and if you lean in, it's exactly that. The The uh, subtitle says it's for loud, smart women, but you definitely don't have to be loud to enjoy it. And in fact, I find it to be, Gina, the sort of quietest of your books in the sense that it has all the humor of all your other books, but it has an introspection that I think makes it a great combination but tell us how you decided to write this book. Well, Roxanne, you're one of the reasons I decided to write this oh. book. I, I mean, absolutely. <laughs> when I think it was even more than 20 years ago that you and I first met. Um, the first book, uh, you just called me Storm, but I drifted, came out in 1991. Oh, and so that's so, when we met. Yeah. I mean, that was a long time ago. Wow. And um, you were so encouraging, as you've been for so many writers um, and continue to be for so many writers. But in my life, you were absolutely instrumental because you were somebody who told me very early on when I couldn't quite hear it, I think it's taken me these 30 years or so, 25 years to hear it, is that I didn't have to always do a song and dance that was funny mm. to uh, get a point across. And I always felt like I had to be uh, the court jester. And I remember you and I and some other friends sitting around and talking. And you were really saying like, okay, you know, you're funny. We get it. But how about telling us some of the more serious stuff on the page mm. that you would talk about a conversation? And that was one of those conversations that I never forgot. And, mm. you know, there were a couple of things that you remember as a writer and not only as a friend and as you know, just somebody who our lives are, are intertwined in various ways. But really, as a writer, that's made a difference to me. And I think it's taken me 
a while to be able to have the courage to talk about things a little more seriously. I think the book is still funny, but there um, it's taken to being almost 60 to have the nerve to say things without trying to make light of them, but still right. trying to illuminate certain dark corners or shadows of our lives, um, to cast some light on them, to make them less scary, not always to make them funny, but to right. point out the absurdity sometimes. And I do think, I, I do think that um, if you lean in, does that? I also always feel, Gina, that you have a way of talking about these things that is liberating for people. And I think, you know, if you normalize things, I think reading can do that. If you And great writers can do that. And you, and you do that. If you can normalize something that people feel is their own peculiar um, worry or deficiency, it sort of takes its power away, doesn't it? Absolutely. That's what I mean. I, I think that's essentially it. And one of the things that I've learned, again, through growing up, is that I'm absolutely generic. That all of the things that yeah. I, I do a lot of speaking, right? So I talk to hundreds and thousands of women a year. And there'll be some wonderful men in those audiences, just as I have, there are great guys who read the columns around the country and have become regular correspondents. And there are like guys who start every email going, I'm a 74 year old Republican and I like your columns. Mm. And I love the ones that start of course. that way. And there are also ones that make me feel like I should wear, you know, Kevlar vests whenever I go outside, <laughs> and I answer those too. But, but I talk to a lot of women, and I realize that when I talk about the things that worry me most, or that I think, just as you said, that it's my idiosyncratic worry, it's the stuff that keeps me up at night, and I realize that I get up there and I say that out loud, that like the women in the audience are nodding and they're going me to and they're so grateful. And this is, you know, this is the part that's just astonishing because we do all think it's only us. Yeah. And that's part of the power of women's voices coming together is that I, I always tell women, it's like, you want me to write a note? I basically, if you lean in, well, men just look down your blouse, is a note to women saying, you're not nuts. Mm. You're not crazy. Because everybody, we all think we're crazy. We all think, oh, my God, is it is it just me? Am I the only one who feels this way? Everybody else's life seems so together. Everybody else is perfect. Everybody else eats organic food. Everybody else grinds their own coffee. This one makes her own water. This one, you know, knits things from llamas that she grows from a pod. You know, everybody else is doing everything. How come I'm such a schlep? How come I've never done anything? And then once you get to start talking to people, you realize that everybody is consumed with exactly the kind of anxiety. And if we all stopped worrying, if we all got together and started to tell the truth, we really have a much better time when we yeah. do that. And, it, and uh, a friend of mine, uh, Miriam Sands, from, who's the CEO of Pals Books out in Portland, Oregon, and a great friend and a wise woman, had a line last year when we were talking about just this. And she said, the problem is always that we are comparing our inside selves to everybody else's outside self. That's a great line. And I think that's exactly right. So I see you and you're a doctor and you do all these things and you're <laughs> gorgeous and all this stuff. Yeah. And I think, you know, you're a professor. <laughs> I forgot to even say you're a professor at UConn. 
And you think, wow, this woman's got it all going on. This is like, I'm just such a loser. And I'm looking at Roxanne, I'm going, this is Roxanne. I'm on her podcast. Of course she has her podcast. Of course she's opening the new bookstore. Of course, but look at her. And you've got the boots that are going on. You look like Joan Jett. You look fabulous. And I look like I'm like a, your grandmother. I'm here like with a babushka. I mean, but this is what we do. And we're friends. And we then we'll have to like each other. And we know what's, what's really not so perfect. Right? Exactly. right? Exactly. And we know that. Absolutely. But those are that that we're it's again, it's identifying the parts of our lives that we think are um flaws. And they're not really flaws. They're the parts that make us us. And you know, every old Yiddish story, like every old Italian story and every old Irish story, is all about getting to the end of your life. And, you know, God or whoever is asking you to say, what did you do in your life? And if you say, well, I tried to be like like Mitzi. And I said, but Mitzi was like Mitzi. You were supposed to be like you. Yeah. That you fail if you're Hard not to who know. you are. Hard to know. Right. And that's something that I, I figure, again, I try to do with my students just to get a message to them earlier. But I think that women around our age, and I identify our age as anybody who's too old for work study and too young for cremation. Right. Those are people our age. And so it's a fairly wide group. And um, but people our age need to be reminded of that, too. And so, like, you know, I had fun putting together the the sort of the the, the chapter titles, the headings for if you lean in. So the first one is I'm not needy. I'm wanty. <laughs> and because I spent my whole life feeling like I'm too much. Right. I'm too loud. I'm too vulgar. I'm too brash, um, a hack, uh, as somebody once called me, one of those things that I've really? never forgotten. You remember it was a mutual friend. It was one of my first... Um, see, I wiped that out yeah, from my see, memory. For me, it's like tattooed, like 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 a brand, uh, like on the you know the back of a piece of cattle that went into me hard and, um, and left a wound. Mm. Um, but, and I think like, you know, I'm not needy. I want this stuff. I've got what I need. Yeah. But it's okay to have an appetite. And again, but women and girls are still taught not to embrace or celebrate or go after what we want. It's like, don't you have what you need, honey? It's like, yeah, but I want this. Right. You know? And why isn't that okay? It's not because still it's the idea of feminine appetite and feminine desire is terrifying. It still is. In our country, it's still terrifying because women are supposed to be wanted, not wanting. And and Gina, didn't wouldn't you have thought thirty years ago, thirty five years ago, that we would live now in a post feminist world? Yeah, I have a whole I have a whole thing on this because it is really what we need to go back to. I've got a section here called you know good girls say no and women should too. And it's about saying no. It's it's not saying no to sex, God knows. Um, one of the other sections is called, he didn't lead me to temptation. Mm. We took a shortcut. <laughs> um, so it's not about sexuality, but it's about other kinds of desire. So that I would have thought, and again, as I talk about in the book, that women would have 
like we opened the gates in many ways, right? That we thought, I mean, the first wave yeah. feminists opened it up for us. Those of us who were doing this stuff in the 70s that a lot of women hadn't done before, you were in a business community where you were one of women who were underrepresented in what you were doing. And I was one of the first women at this, would have been an all-male college. And we thought, okay, we're going to, we're going to, open these gates. We're going to help keep these gates open. And then there's going to be the rush of the women yeah. behind us. Right. And then you turn around and it's like Belushi in Animal House where he goes, let's go. And like nobody follows him. Yeah. And then we found that like, you know, like then people are are wearing like glitter T-shirts saying hoochie and that that's now what feminism is and you're going no 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 that's not what we meant this is not what we meant at all and it wasn't so that men would start using makeup and putting gel in their hair it was that so we would stop it wasn't to make things less awful you know more awful for everybody but sort of less awful for everybody and so i would have thought that things would be easier for example for the women growing up now than they were for us and i don't necessarily think that that's true i think that there is it's a little easier it's a little easier there is more equity on paper uh, I think in terms of the ways that girls and young women still torture themselves in their inner lives, I think it's still very, very hard. Um, I think that in terms of body image, that girls still think that they're ugly, that they're fat, that they're – I do not believe that, uh, you know, 500 of my students would think that they were lactose intolerant or had to be gluten-free if it made you fat. Mm-hmm. I think if being gluten-free made you fat, nobody would be gluten-free. I think it's just another way of dieting. And these are people whose palates aren't even developed. They don't even know. Yeah. And I'm not talking about people who have been tested for celiac. I'm talking about people who are just like – Make you know, this up. Well, who are so concerned. They're beautiful. They're 20. They're yeah. they're going to be beautiful whatever they How can they you like. not look good at 20? But do you remember what you felt like at 20? Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. it wasn't easy. It's not easy. And so that's why I think that talking about this stuff and being honest about it and talking about just how difficult it is and, again, that we spend our lives looking over our shoulders, um, not only because we're afraid that somebody is – you know could actually be harming us. You have that great line from Margaret Atwood who said that men's greatest fear is that women will laugh at them. Women's greatest fear is that men will kill them. You know, I mean that those are big fears and um, there's a big difference between those two things. And so that, you know, women are looking over our shoulders um, and wondering if there's somebody stalking us and then we're looking over our shoulders wondering if anybody, you know, is the competition gaining on us. It's really hard to move forward if you spend a lot of time looking over your shoulder. Women really need to refocus. Yeah. So speaking about all of this, uh, one of the things I was hoping – uh, for you to share with us are the books that you think are important for young girls or women our age to read to either think differently about feminism or important to understand the history of feminism or define feminism? Wow. Okay. That's an interesting question. Um, I would say one of the books that I still try to get my students to read, uh, it's long and it starts in a way that seems to make it feel anachronistic, but it isn't, at least not as far as I'm concerned, is Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex. Mm. I don't think 
you can get past that. I love that book. I go yeah, back I and too. reread that book. I've never reread it. Oh, it's worth going back to. To read it again as an adult because she goes through the different phases of a woman's life. And it really is like the Ur text. Like you can go back to that. I had very, very different responses to reading that when I was like reading it in college, mm-hmm. you know, at 20 and then reading it at 40 when I was teaching it and then reading it I think about two years ago to decide whether or not I was going to use it again. And of course, I decided not to because it was too long and I didn't want to chop it up and just use pieces of it. So, Gina, do your kids, your students, Mm -hmm. do they find when they read that, do they find it – do they find that it's not really applicable to them today? Do they think it's dated? Do they think it's – all better. What's the reaction to the it? The reaction to something like the second sex is that she is um, she relies heavily on Freud, and now a lot of the students don't have um, that background. Of, well, not even the background, but the vocabulary that Simone de Beauvoir writing um, in the sort of intellectual history of the forties, uh, you know, coming out of the thirties and forties um, would have imagined her audience to be able to, if she's making references to psychology, to Jung, to Freud, to... And she's not backfilling enough that you could... That for the students, that they're very young. But again, I think that for the most part, for an educated reader, and I'm not... I'm tired of apologizing for saying for an educated reader. I'm... Mm. I'm, I'm, That's like... That's a new thing for me. I am done with thinking that educated is a bad word. Elitist, that it means elitist. Well, right. I mean, educated is somebody who reads. My parents didn't graduate from high school. They were educated. They were autodidacts. They taught themselves. Like my dad. Yeah. I mean, that's educated. It doesn't mean – it has nothing to do with degrees. You know, it's like in The Wizard of Oz where they tell the scarecrow, I can't give you a brain, but I can give you a diploma. Mm-hmm. You know, I know a lot of people with a lot of degrees who are not particularly smart, were not very well educated, but they have a lot of diplomas. Yeah. And I know a lot of people who are educated and who are smart who have no pieces of paper. One right. thing does not go with the other. Um, but I'm not. I'm not vilifying the idea of intellectual or educated. I think that those are good things to be. Right. So I would say that a smart reader can get the best parts of that book. Even I'm going to reread it. It's worth it. Honest to God. I loved it. I loved yeah, it when I read it. It's great. It really is. It's really – she's funny. She gets at all, like the mythologies that we grow up with and the mythologies about older women because she sort of goes into like the hag – the over 60-year-old woman yeah. and how terrifying she is because the laws sort of don't apply to her anymore, the laws of femininity, because she's out of the marriage market. She's not she, – if she's not a sexual being, if she's not defined as, you know, again, God help us, we all were sexual beings. But if she's not defined that way by the culture, then the rules – applied to conventional feminine behavior don't apply to her. And that's why she's a witch figure. That's why she's a sorceress. That's why she's a villainess is because all of those um, sort of uh, uh, shackles that had been holding her in and holding her down for all those years, she can break free of them. So talk about long books. I mean, one of the books that I found, um, you know, I always – use a term from Calvino about rests in the layers of your unconscious 
is The Golden Notebook. Oh, yes. By Doris Lessing. Yes. Yes. Now I haven't ever reread that, and that was that was definitely a doorstopper. That was absolutely no. That's a big book. I went back and taught that once in a graduate seminar, and I also loved Lessing. I loved it, and um, that I found much less than Simone de Beauvoir didn't hold up well. Yeah, I, I bet that's right. That one felt um, it was that fusty. moment. It really was, and I think that. Now that would seem more like a document of a historical value. There were still great lines. I mean, again, about her writing about her body and looking down and mm. seeing the first time that she sees like her legs dimpling. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there are there are just moments that I'd never seen. I better read that part because that's what's going on. <laughs> no, but, <that's, laughs> but it's but it's like but you never heard a woman writing that about her body. Yeah. I remember being startled by the honesty in that, um, but that didn't hold up. Like I, you know, and I'm like, I'm very. I want the students to tell me what works and what doesn't work. Um, so, what else should we read? Um, I love. There's um, an anthropologist who I go back to a lot named Mary Douglas, and she's enormously readable. And she's got Purity and Danger is one of her big books. Um, How institutions think. So, when were they written? Uh, in the 60s, 70s, mm-hmm. and um, but again, work very well in terms of sort of how to think about the world. And so Mary Douglas is somebody that I use, you know, um, is sort of setting up a framework um, to to look at how we come up with categories of behavior so that, again, what's feminine is unclean, right? It needs to be washed. It needs to be purified. Mm. It needs to be separated as a category. And um, that Douglas is also, I mean, she's a very witty writer. She talks about humor. She talks about humor um, being sort of trashy. It's like how we look at these, you know, these other categories um, that uh, ethnicity is sort of trashy. Right. It's in a way feminized, you know, class, how class mm-hmm. plays into all of this stuff. And it's just sort of looking at the larger picture. Mary Douglas is really interesting. I've never even heard of it. It's not their more academic books, but again, that, that's those are the books that you can pick up and you'll get a smart idea on every page. Like wow. something to think about the world. I think she's fascinating. Um, Elizabeth Janeway wrote a book. I think it's out of print now, which I always hate to think, but maybe not. Um, my copy is so old, I've got it held together you know, with tape, uh, called The Powers of the Week. And that's the best... W-E-A-K, The Powers of the Week, mm-hmm. and um, written, again, probably uh, 20 years ago, maybe more. And she's the one who came up with the best definition of power. And, you know, I did um, – we can talk about these uh, um, later, but um, my husband and I have both done introductions to a lot of books for Penguin and Signet. And I did the introduction to Machiavelli's The Prince because it had always been one oh, of my I remember books. when you did yeah, that. I love doing that. And I used Janeway's line to begin because Janeway, for reading everything about power that I could, especially in trying to prepare a good introduction to this book. Uh, but I start with Janeway who says that power is the ability not to have to please. Mm. That's it. Power is the ability not to have to please. Yeah. Now, if you are female, you are brought up in this world to please, yeah. right? Be nice. Be good. Come on. Smile. Come on, honey. Smile. You're so much prettier when you smile. You know, make everybody else around you happy. Your purpose is to please. 
Yeah. And if that's your job, you have no power. Yeah, that's incompatible. Right. Incompatible. It's actually Inc- incompatible. Yes, that's right. You know, this little book um, called We Should All Be Feminists no. by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. She's a very gifted writer, from uh, originally from Nigeria, and she takes these very simple things, like something you said years ago. Yeah, feminists can wear lipstick. Right. You don't if, – if you call yourself a feminist, it doesn't mean that you can't be interested in clothes. She says, I love gloss. You know, mm-hmm. I like different kinds of gloss. But it's also what she talks about here is exactly to your point – that if what you're trying to do is be liked, you're putting a gate around what you're willing to say or do. Because I, I always compare it to this. You know, when you go to a meeting, like a, let's say a town hall meeting, and you've got the person who just won't stop making their same point over and over again, that what I always want to do is say, is think, you know what? I wish they would sit down. They're making everybody uncomfortable. They're taking up a lot of time. And I don't like them. And really, they're doing what you have to do to effectuate change, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They are doing what you need to do. And I think as women, that tug of wanting to please is at odds with the kinds of things you need to say and do to really come into your own, whether it's, you want to call it power or, or something else. That's a, I've never heard that. It's a, it's, I think we should have it needle-pointed on pillows. Uh, there should be T-shirts. I'm going to do a T-shirt. A T-shirt. Power is the ability not to have to please. It's Elizabeth Janeway. And it's it's I quote it, you know, in several of the essays in the book because it doesn't mean that you won't. Please. I mean, I like to think, for example, you know, again, I'm, but it's not the goal. It's not the goal. It is. It's like going for happiness. Happiness can't be a goal. It's the byproduct of doing the other stuff that you're supposed to be doing. That's what makes you happy. But the other part of it, Gina, that that occurs to me as I'm listening to you is that if you are trying to please and that's the framework of your relationships you're going to be in relationships all the time that are confining. Because as you say, it doesn't mean you become unlikable, but it does suggest that the people who will like you will like you for the more authentic, although I hate that word already, the more the more authentic part of yourself. Whereas if you're playing Barbie doll and you're the pleaser, then your relationship is going to be based on this fake pleasing you. Exactly right. And that's where I think that this whole imposter syndrome that women talk about a lot and that they feel divided, like there's a real self and a fake self or a social self, comes through that women often or and people who whatever position of powerlessness that they come out of, whatever reason that they feel marginalized, um, that they feel as if they are only liked because they please somebody as opposed to who they are that their only value is in getting somebody else to respond to them in a way that um, will make that person feel good. So so one of the books that – the kinds of books I like to read 
that are indirectly about feminism are biographies Mm -hmm. about women. And two of my favorite from some years ago, one is the biography of Catherine the Great by Bob Massey, is one of the most extraordinary biographies I've ever read. So here's Catherine the Great in the 1700s who becomes the head of the Russian Empire, which was huge, had a gargantuan sexual appetite, was not quiet about it at all. When Once when she wanted to get rid of one of her lovers, she gave him Poland or something to like, <laughs> get him out of Russia. Um, she was um, – I think that's true. I think I'm not making that up. I think I'm not making that up. I think that that should also be on a (laughs) T-shirt. But she was also a progressive. She was also totally not afraid to use her power. And the other biography is Stacey Schiff's biography of Cleopatra. Really? I think I remember you reading that, but I haven't read either of those books. Now, Catherine the Great left a gazillion journals. So her story... And what she was thinking about is well-documented. And Bob Massey used a lot of it. Cleopatra, Stacey Schiff, there's not as much left. She's using more conjecture. But there are some basic facts about her. And the other biography is uh, Personal History by Catherine Graham. And what I like about that was she was the reluctant feminist, meaning she was – the daughter of a powerful man. She was the wife of a powerful man who then committed suicide and she had to take over the Washington Post. And she grew into her shoes. She, I mean, Warren Buffett and others were helpful advisors to her, but she came to take on that cloak in a way that was probably unexpected. And you you see stories like that. So I love biographies. And the one I just started, there's a new book out that's a biography of Queen Victoria. Ah, yes. She's a fascinating figure. Oh my! Yeah. For one, she was the queen for a very long time. Yeah. She was not the prettiest little creature, right? She was a tiny plump. Yeah, she didn't have to be. Um, she was a queen. Mm-hmm. And you look at how the British Empire grew under her rule and she also was progressive. And the view of her has been very tainted by a couple of different little things that are totally at odds with who she actually was. You know, the, a lot of people thought that it was really her husband running the country and then he died early and, you know, she went on for like another 50 years to do a great job running the country. Now, what's an interesting book to read in um, sort of concert with that would be one of the great potboilers of the late 19th century called She by Ryder Haggard which is a version of like a Stephen King novel. I mean, it was as popular. Um, and what it is about a queen. It is she who must be obeyed. That's where that mm. phrase comes from. That's the only way that this queen is known, is she who must be obeyed. And she's this immortal figure except for the men that she falls for. And it's told in – and it's really all about Victoria and the empire. It's it's said as if it's a real story. It's sort of told in letters and then you get inside these men's lives as they travel through Africa. And it was like the hit. It was the big blockbuster novel. So Ryder Haggard is the name of the author. Right. And again, I did the introduction to the Signet edition. But it's a big – because I studied Victorian literature. It's one of the things that I teach. And so – but this is as a representation of Victoria because there was also a lot of fear 
of having a woman as the head of state. I mean, this she was not, you know, a, not a universally beloved figure. There no. was a, a lot of, and you know, there was a lot of stuff going on in terms of women and power there. And I think, I think I'm remembering this right. I think it was in Peter Gay's book about um, the sort of history of sexuality in the 19th century, where that it was in one of her pregnancies was the first time that twilight sleep was used during delivery. That's true. Right? That's true. And that chloroform. Chloroform. Because, right, they call it, they won't call it chloroform. They talk about it in the book. Yeah. But that, um, because there was huge controversy over that because they said, no, in the Bible it says women must bring forth their children in pain. And that was this was going against the Bible. These were like the Bible thumpers saying the queen is going against the edict. The first punishment of getting thrown out of Eden was that women shall bring forth. And she was like, forget about it. Get me, <laughs> get me as much yes. of that stuff as you can. And she was queen. And after that, then other regular women did not have to – you know, go through agonies of labor unnecessarily because there were, you know, things that would actually get them through the time and make them feel slightly better as they went through labor. So I want to ask you a couple of different questions uh, before we uh, finish. One is, what's the book that changed your life? Well, the one that I talked about in the book that changed my life um, was reading Jean Kerr who was a humor writer and also a playwright. Uh, but I was maybe, again, eight years old. And that was the first book that I, I took it into the shower with me. It was a paperback. <laughs> I took it to the shower. The water wasn't I on, was it, Gina? Yeah, it was. It yeah. was. It was. It was. Um, I treat books as objects. Um, I write in them. I, I you know, I, I brought some here. This is a great book. This is... My Age of Anxiety by Scott Stossel. That's pretty new. That it's came out came a couple out of years year, ago. Yeah. Yeah. And um, in terms of anxiety, it's terrific because it's not only women. <laughs> it's perfect. Yeah. Novel that was brilliant that um, a friend of mine wrote that's doing very well, translated in all these different languages. Have her come and read. She's fabulous. Um, big hit. And um, big, but the name of the book that Jean is talking about is, is Pretty Is by Maggie Mitchell. Right. And that is just re- – this is an advanced reader copy but because I have a very nice paragraph about me in the acknowledgement. So I basically want to get that on a T-shirt too. Right. But um, it just recently came out of paperback. The books that changed my life. So I would say that reading a funny woman writer when I was a kid really did – I thought like I want to do this. I mean as a child. Um, I did not read children's books. We didn't have them in the house. I read whatever my parents had. So I read – I remember being very impressed by uh, Upstairs, Downstairs by mm-hmm. Belle Kaufman. I loved. When I got to college, um, I read uh, really everything I could find. I, when I read Erasmus's, um, uh oh God um, – did you no, go to Erasmus High School? No, 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 I didn't. No, I went to Oceanside High School by the time I was – we moved out of Brooklyn by the yeah. time. But no, Erasmus, I just think of with uh, All About Eve. But um, uh, Erasmus, the writer, wrote In Praise of Folly. And uh, so is this – not obscure essay, but a uh, dense essay. And I wanted to do a parody of it for a class, a complex class. And the professor said, you know what? I'll just give you an A. I don't know if you read a parody of it that – you know, you'll do a great job. I want you to do something harder than that. I want you to analyze it. I want you to do a real critical analysis of that. So, so don't worry about the grade. Just do what's harder for you. Mm. 
And I did. And I don't think I, I wouldn't have had the nerve to do it without that safety net that he gave me. And it really was. Which is an interesting absolutely. thing to think about as a professor. Absolutely. I made the leap and I landed and it was like a trampoline. I mean, it was fun. It wasn't just a safety net. It was yeah. like the surface to bounce off of. And I thought, oh, I, like, I can do this. You know, this is fun. And so I started to realize, like, I could do that. So that was something, an incident that changed my life. But it was also about humor and about how humor functions. And so that's the first time I got interested in humor. I mean, humor has always been a thread. And then it was really when I started reading you know, Margaret Atwood and Faye Weldon and Muriel Spark and Edna O'Brien and yeah. these great writers that um, I felt inspired. Uh, I, yeah, I've never written fiction. I don't think that I'm a fiction writer, but um, inspired by these women's voices to try to find my own and yeah. then realize that my own was an echo of so many other women and a lot of whom didn't have the same safety or loudness or whatever that I had. Now, tomorrow, you have a big birthday. Yes. How are you going to celebrate, cutie? My 60th birthday. Um, well, I've been celebrating. I fear that this, I'm going to like get everything. A- absolutely. Like everything that I can out of this. So my brother and sister-in-law are going to come up from Brooklyn. And um, so they're going to bring bagels because you still can't. You got to You got to have a really good bagel. And I found out good places in Connecticut to get locks, but I still have not found the perfect bagel. I can't. I can't. Do you know what my indulgence is? Speaking of locks, I have Russ and Daughters where – so I grew up on the Lower East Side, as you know. Mm-hmm. So Russ and Daughters is still the deli that's downtown like right. Katz's. is. And I have them send me smoked salmon oh, every three weeks. Every three weeks. It's every a regular three weeks, delivery. I get it delivered. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Other people have indulgences like diamonds. Yes, exactly. No. This is not you. you Mine <laughs> is smoked salmon or locks. That's it. Yeah. From the Lower East Side. That's perfect. Yeah. That's wonderful. And you you just know exactly when it's going to run out. Every You've, three weeks. Exactly. That's perfect. Yeah. It came yesterday. It's per- good. Good. <laughs> Congratulations. Muzzle That's great. And um, so you've got. You've got bagels. You've got locks. I've got bagels. I've got locks. He's going to bring um, cannolis from Veneros. Oh, nice. Veneros is great. Again, Lower East Side. And um, and then uh, celebrating with some more friends in New York and it's friends here. Students have been coming and, nice. and coming to visit. So, and I'm seeing you. So what's not to celebrate? This So is happy it. birthday, sweetie pie. Thank you, babe. And thanks for, you know, all all the writing I think you've done have kind of loosened uh, the reins for women of all shapes and sizes to understand that saying they're feminists is a good thing. And the definition of feminism is a broad, inclusive way of thinking about ourselves as women. And I just think you've done a great job, so thank you. And thank, thank you. you for joining us oh, on Just the Right Book. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here. I hope I'll be on again. <laughs> you will. For a complete list of all the books we talked about today, just head to bookpodcast.com and please rate and review us on iTunes and send us an email at info at justtherightbookpodcast.com. We would love to hear from you. Just the Right Book Podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our producer is Christina Torres, and our sound engineer is Pat Keogh. Our original music was created by Mark Berman. Thank you all for listening.